Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. I'm Jewel, and I'm here with Cheryl, and we are going to go through some state of the industry points, as well as a few points of training that we feel is really crucial moving forward with a cultivation. So we're going to go ahead and get started with that. Cheryl, welcome to the call. Are you there? I'm here. Hi, everybody. Okay, great. All right. So today we're going to get started with uh, something that has come to my attention and that's a lot of people consider themselves growers and that's great. And that's definitely a high priority when you're going to have a cultivation, but there's something else that's equally as important uh, in terms of, and it's part of growing, but it's something that people seem to uh, that it's not as high a priority and that is curing. And so I would like to, just to have a little bit of a conversation as well as clarify for anybody who's not familiar with the curing process that it it really is crucial to the success of your harvest. Ultimately, it's one of the final steps, but it it's very crucial in determining how your overall product is going to be received by your consumer, but also how it's going to reflect on you as a business. So when we're curing cannabis, we have to think about it in the same way that a winery would think about how they are going to um, store their wine so that it develops a full-bodied flavor. And cannabis is no different. It will change with the way and the processes that are used on it. So we all have different ways that we like to grow our cannabis, whether that's with nutrients or organic or a certain type of farming. But what really matters is getting the best long-term flavor out of your product. And whether that's flavor for somebody who chooses to smoke it or somebody who's looking to uh, juice the product, potency and the result is, is what we all really care about. So most growers agree that curing is just important as the growing techniques, but how exactly do you go about getting the very best uh, curing process for your cannabis. So Cheryl, do you want to walk us through part of that? Part of your the curing process, I think curing starts right at the <clears throat> tail end. When you're flushing your product, um, the last couple of weeks, of course, you don't give your plants nutrients. You just flush with water and hopefully distilled water or a pH that's, um, you know, 5.9 to 6.3 just so that you flush out any nutrients, anything that's left behind, any residues, you just give your product straight water. And I think that's when your curing starts. You're curing, um, and you'll hear lots of opinions, but I use a jeweler's loop when I get ready to harvest, and I make sure that the trichomes, and the trichomes, if you're a new grower, is the, the it's the sticky part of the plant that uh, looks like a little under a jeweler's loop. It looks like a miniature mushroom and it's clear. Um, it almost looks like there's it's water. Um, it's so clear. But if you let that 
age on there. Um, some people go by the the uh, the hairs that are on the plant. They take it when it's about 80% orange. Some people go with the color of the trichomes. Um, I think letting it go to the till the trichomes are just a little bit opaque, that have a milky look to them. Uh, if you take it too early, you're going to interrupt the the potency and the flavor of your product. So there's a real um, there's a, a, a knack there that you're looking for. And I mean, you can take it too early and it's not going to be a, a disaster and you can leave it on there a little too long and it's not going to be a disaster, but just like curing fine wine, it becomes, it becomes something that you're, you're challenged to get it better than it was last time. And so, you know, keep good notes and um, decide, okay, I, I took it when it was, you know, very cloudy or I took it when it was clear um, and, and decide when you're going to start your harvest. And that's when your, your curing and, and drying trim starts is watching those trichomes. And then when they become that exact shade that you're looking for, harvest your plant. And then um, I like to take the fan leaves off before I even cut the plant because it's just a whole lot easier to take those large leaves off before you even start. So take your plant to a, a working height and just remove all the, all the big leaves that are on there and then, then take the plant. You could start by taking off the smaller branches and then uh, trimming those up and hanging them and then just finish with the big one at the, at the end. Some people take the whole plant and then just you know cut the smaller branches off. It becomes a very personal experience with your own plants and how you want to do it. But the curing for me begins when you start flushing the plant. Does that answer your question, Jewel? Yes, and I think it was really for everybody on the call so that they could understand that it, it is a personal preference that some people would consider what you just talked about to be really the drying phase and then the curing is what happens after but it is personal preference and it it really does matter to the quality of your product of when you start these different phases of the plant and that's it depends on your environment absolutely but the best results for beginning the drying process is a relative humidity of 45 to 55 percent and obviously at that point you most likely will have trimmed the plant and this is when the moisture is going to start coming out and that's why you want to control the end of the drying phase right through to the curing phase so that it's not drying out too quickly because otherwise you will lose some of those uh the trichomes and the the crystally part of the bud and that's what you really want to avoid the the um the all of the trim becomes very valuable and I've been learning quite a bit about this recently that when you take the bud and you trim off those fan leaves the fan leaves become valuable you can use them in salads there's no THC in them and it doesn't become activated THC doesn't become activated until the bud has been heated anyway so you can use the leaves in in salad and uh, juicing um, there's all kinds of things that you can use it for i been reading lately that you can use the stalk and the stem and the roots even to make tinctures and teas. So there's a lot of different things that you can uh, use this whole plant for. And just to go over the 
curing process that we believe is the most ideal. So it would be after you have dried the plant and you want to then place your buds in wide mouth jars and leave them, fill it three quarters of the way, but then leave room for air at the top. And you want to store those jars in a dark cupboard or a dark space and check them every day to ensure that there's no mold or mildew that has contaminated your harvest. And opening those jars daily allows for fresh air exchange and will even pull more moisture out of your buds, but without doing it in any rapid way that would cause a compromise to your product. And the then after that is very important. And uh, yes, and, and, and the longer really that you can continue yes. it ultimately four weeks is standard, but for somebody who's growing a craft cannabis, I would recommend eight weeks. Really the longer you can do this process of a slow cure, ultimately the better it's going to be. And when Jules talking about the curing, she's not talking about when it's in the jars. She's talking about when it's actually, you've taken the fan leaves off, you've trimmed off all the, um, the small leaves and, and now you've just got the bud on the stem. That's when you'll hang it upside down and let it cure, um, just let it, and four weeks or eight weeks, this is all something that's subjective to the environment that you live in. So if, if we're talking to somebody right now that lives in Nevada, I know in Nevada, you actually have a problem with keeping the product moist all the way along because it's so dry in the desert. If we're talking to somebody in Hawaii, of course, um, too much moisture becomes a, a big issue for mold there. So it, it depends on your circumstances, your environment um, geographically. If you're in a, in a moist place, then you want to uh, speed up the, the cure. If you're in the de desert, you're going to probably have your stuff hanging inside a tent and trying to keep it moist as you're doing the cure, which would be a real challenge, I think. Yes, I do think that in different climates, it can be difficult to control. But after you have finished that drying phase of when the, the bud is hanging and you do go into the curing phase in the jars where you are uh, controlling the moisture by letting them breathe and then not letting them breathe and repeating that through each day while it's going through this curing process, as we said, the longer, up to eight weeks, even longer in some cases, depending on the moisture of the climate that you're in is really ultimately what's going to get you the best cure for your bud. So now we're going to move into the next part of our conversation for today, which is marketing. And I really, we've touched on this in, on other live calls, definitely, but I feel that it's something that is really going to make or break a business and not just in the cannabis industry. Marketing can make or break a business in every industry. So what, what does marketing mean and how is it going to impact your business? Well, because we specialize in helping micro cultivations, ultimately that means that you are a craft cannabis producer. If you were growing a product for the lower end of the market, you would be competing with the product that is currently being produced by LPs. But because you're not, you're a craft cultivator, your goal is going to be to have a higher product, a high-end product that is worth more, that is better quality, that consumers enjoy more, and that there's a better result from. So that would be considered high-end cannabis. And 
I'd like to give you an example of how to brand yourself in this way. So there is a company that has somewhat prided themselves on being a high-end craft cannabis producer. And so I'm going to share with you their name and their website so that you can go and just give yourself an idea of the kind of production quality that uh, they are marketing with. So they're probably and most likely not doing anything any different than most craft cultivators who are very passionate about cannabis are doing. They are just using that information in their marketing. And so they're letting people know about the things that they do during the cultivation process and the things that they do during the curing process that would set them apart and make their product so outstanding. So the company is Top Leaf and the website is topleaf.ca. So that's T-O-P-L-E-A-F.ca. And this isn't about uh, competition. So don't think of it in that way at all. This is really more of a learning tool for you to see how someone is using their growing practices to speak specifically to a consumer and how they are niching into their market by using specific language that those consumers would be looking for when they're shopping for a top shelf cannabis. Cheryl, did you want to add anything to that? No, um, I, <clears throat> I haven't looked at topleaf.ca, so I'm looking forward to checking that out after I get off the call. Yes, and they are, uh, they're very much craft growers and uh, their marketing is very clearly meant to target people who are cannabis connoisseurs, if you will. And so from that, I would like to move into how that relates to your standard operating procedures and your good production practices. So if you're at week four or beyond, then you already have your standard operating procedures and your good production practice templates from us. But those are how you run your business. So that's the, the SOPs are detailed, uh, outlines of everything from how to wash your hands to how to run certain equipment to your trimming practices and everything in between. But you need to have the same sense of commitment when it comes to tracking your quote unquote process. And what I mean by that is your special sauce that makes your craft cultivation different and something that consumers would be interested in. And so just the same way that Topleaf has used how they grow their cannabis in their story, you want to start thinking about that for yourself as well. And so by tracking your process, it serves two purposes. The first being that it will be the same for you, the way that Coca-Cola has a recipe for how they produce it and they guard that recipe with with everything that they have ultimately, that's the same for you. So don't document these processes in your SOPs. They should be ethical, they should be moral. You shouldn't be doing anything that would be uh, suspicious, but you do want to protect your trade secrets. This is your Colonel Sanders chicken. This is your Coca-Cola recipe. So you need to document exactly how you're growing your cannabis so that not only is your product consistent, but your secret sauce is duplicatable for every one of your harvests. And the second reason that you want to do that is because 
having that information is going to allow you to uh, demonstrate to your consumer why your product is so much better. It's, it's the same thing as Coke versus Pepsi. It's the kind of thinking that when you have all of this documentation for how your processes are completed, even the proprietary ones, you can use examples of your processes without revealing any of that information, but it relays to the consumer your commitment to quality and how when they shop with you, they're going to get a cannabis that they won't be getting anywhere else. It's an experience. And often people will pay more for a specific experience than they will for a no-name brand of cannabis or soda or chips or whatever. So that's really what, what this whole section of marketing for today's conversation is about, is it's look at Top Leaf, look at the way that they're marketing, and then consider how you're going to grow your cultivation and how you're going to use your proprietary trade secrets to help customers understand why your product should be the one that they choose. So now we're going to move into innovation. And Cheryl, this is really your, uh, something that is really a specialty of yours. So if, do you want to go over the hand trimming versus machine trimming conversation that we're going to have today? Sure. So <clears throat> I hand trim all of my product. I have seen the trimming machines that they use at trade shows that I've been to. And I get it. If I'm an LP and I'm trying to process, you know, 500 pounds a day, then hiring the manpower that would be required to hand trim that kind of uh, bulk would be probably impossible. And so I get why people want to use the machines. And there are multiple um, fabricators out there that have designed and patented these trimming machines. Um, there's simple ones that look like a giant golf ball with a, it's got little fingers inside of it. And then you spin like a lettuce dryer on the top and these little fingers go around and knock off all the leaves. Um, I've seen ones that are the size of um, like they can be up to five feet long and a diameter of you know, uh, two feet and they have a hopper on one end and you feed the, the cannabis buds through and it uh, goes through, it's almost like a slice and dice, like it goes through these blades and knocks off all the, all the um, excess and so that you're just finished when you finish up at the other end of this machine out comes this bud and it's all perfectly trimmed Now, perfectly trimmed i don't know if it's perfectly trimmed i i like the way hand trimming looks i think that you can preserve a lot of the trichomes if you're hand trimming and i become very obsessed with making sure that the trichomes and um, the flavor profile is preserved as much as possible so for me, I don't even want to use the one that has the the little rubber fingers that looks like a lettuce spinner. Um, all of ours is hand trimmed. So by doing it by hand, you get a lot of precision. Um, you can maintain the specific qualities of your strain, uh, specifically the trichomes. And when you're hand trimming, you can really look at what your 
product is. And you can check to see if there's any, you know, seeds or excess stem or if there's any mold or bud rot, you'll, you'll see it as you're handling the product. And then there's no chance of it getting into a big hundred, uh, hundred pound pail at the end of a machine. It, 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 it you're really putting your um, personal touch on it. The, the bad thing is that it's very time consuming and it's very labor intensive and it can be very expensive to, to provide that labor if like it depends on the size of your crop. And, and I also understand, you know, that when you're using a machine, there's a lot of speed there. There's uh, there's, it, it's a sterile, hopefully a sterile environment. Uh, the machine gets cleaned with rubbing alcohol um, between uses um, but unfortunately, a machine will overtrim your product, and those machines are not cheap. The, I saw one at uh, at the Vegas show, and it was um, it could be added onto so that if you spent the seven thousand dollars to buy the first part, and then found that it wasn't enough, they uh, piggybacked onto each other, so you could spend another seven thousand dollars and have the tube twice as long, or if you needed to, you could, so it wouldn't be a difficult thing to spend $30,000 to trim the weed. That doesn't, that, that to me just doesn't make any sense. Unless you're an LP and you've got huge crops to go, it, it doesn't make any sense to me to spend that kind of money on a, on, on a craft product. And I don't mean it's not worth spending money on your craft product. I mean, it's not worth spending money on trimmers. Um, you know, I can see spending that kind of money on a different piece of equipment that's essential to, to a craft grower, but I can't see spending um, that kind of money on a, on a machine to trim your product. Well, and I it's, think it comes back and relates to as well. It lends a story about craft growers with hand trimming yes. lend themselves to a higher price point because the quality has been looked over by a human. Every piece has been evaluated yes. by someone who's fully qualified to determine whether that meets the standard of the business. When we're talking about, um, you know, the innovations that have come with this industry, there are a lot of um, tables and lights and tables with lights and, um, I recently watched a YouTube video of a large LP and they were busy showing off some overhead cranes that they had brought into their operation. And they would, they would send this computerized, send this crane into their grow up and the crane would drop down and pick up an entire table and, and bring it out of the flower room. And while I have to admit that I really admired the innovative application of that technology, I thought about how craft growers have a real hands-on experience. And I thought about the difference in the growing techniques between an LP and, and a craft grower and the difference in the finished product. Um, both situations work, I think. Uh, uh, because I'm a craft grower, I can only speak about what I do. And so for me, the hands-on application of um, trimming the product by hand or walking into the flower room and looking at, you know, what's going on in there. I really have a feel for what's going on inside my business where sometimes if you've got somebody that's operating a computer <clears throat> and they're not actually looking at the, at the, at the bud, they're just sending a, 
a crane in there to pick up an entire table because of some reading that's on a dial or a computer screen in a in an office somewhere else. I don't know. It just kind of takes that personal um, personal touch out of the out of the, the the experience. I think. Well, anything handmade is more valuable than something that's been produced by a machine. And you know, at the end of the day, we have to remember that this is a plant. When somebody has a rose farm, do they have a machine go out there and pluck each rose off of the the plant and bring it into some facility and then it's all done by a machine? No, because a human is the only one who's capable of determining the true quality of something. You know, you look at the numbers, you look at how the actual product looks to the eye. And it's really only a human who can make those decisions about a product, whether it it meets the standard of that particular cultivation to go out the door to a consumer. And I think that's why, you know, yes, all of the technology that LPs have is very flashy and it's very, uh, you know, it makes people go, Ooh, and and Uh it's very impressive. But I think at the end of the day, when you're dealing with something that is a living, breathing plant, Uh, you need something else that has that almost sixth sense where you can put all the pieces together and see it for what it is and know if it's really something that another cannabis connoisseur is going to appreciate for what it is. You can tell, like you you can, for me, I can tell by the smell, I can tell by the look that I'm about two weeks out or gee, I need to alter, I I need to adjust this because of the, you know, the smell or the way the product's looking um, I, I just, because I have such a hands-on feel for what I'm doing, I just, um, and it's something I've just picked up in, over the time that I've been growing because I guess because I'm not automated that, you know, I just, I really enjoy what I'm doing. So I like to keep an eye on what I'm doing and, and to make sure that the product that goes out the door is safe and healthy and it's the best that I can grow. And that really leads us to the next point, which is a commitment to quality. And that's something that we have for our facility and that we hope that all of our clients will also have at their facility. And so right now we are exploring the differences between uh, advanced nutrients, which we have used, and then earth juice, which is an organic uh, additive that we are looking at using. We're also exploring some Korean farming techniques. Because for us, innovating in a way that stems from quality is of the highest priority. And so we encourage you to do the same, that we will continue to bring information about how we have tested products and how they've worked for us. But if you're using a different growing system or a different growing medium, we really encourage you to continue innovating and discovering even better ways of producing uh, quality product in a, in a way that is moral and ethical and follows all of those uh, consumer safety standards. And that's where you're going to find your secret sauce. That's where you're going to find the little things that you do that makes your product unique. Um, I think, Joel, didn't you recently read an article about the way the sun hits higher elevations and why they can grow uh, great product outside? Yes. And, and it, it comes down to uh, how the sun affects high THC plants and how THC is actually the cannabis plant's natural protectant from uh, 
UVB rays. And so that's why plants that are grown in high elevation typically have a higher or high THC plants that are grown at a higher elevation than a, the same strain that is grown at a lower elevation, they will produce more THC for that strain. So where it would normally sit at 20%, a high THC strain that's grown at a high elevation and therefore closer to the sun and receiving more UVB rays will actually have you know 28% THC because it's the, sun, it's the natural protectant for the plants. And so that discovering those sort of things and then using that information as part of your grow is exactly what Cheryl said. That's how you're going to discover the nuances that will be part of your secret sauce, your proprietary blend. And that's what people are really going to be looking for as the cannabis market matures is they're going to look for somebody who produces an amazing strawberry cream strain or an amazing Godfather OG. And that's the trends that matter are, you know, commitment to quality. And then to go into uh, our next topic, that's sustainability. And that's going to be something that is crucial moving forward and is also uh, very marketable. And that just happens to be uh, convenient at the moment, obviously being sustainable and considering the environment and your growing practices is always the ethical thing to do, but it also happens to be a very marketable asset at this current state in the market. So Cheryl, did you want to take us through uh, the first part of the sustainability? There's, <clears throat> this has to do with not just the the packaging but it has to do with your growing techniques too like if you if you grow outside and you're using mother nature instead of your lights well that's a sustainability that becomes attractive in your marketing um if you are you know you're not using fans to plug in to a wall socket to if you're growing outside <clears throat> you're relying on mother nature to provide that that becomes um a factor that's important if you're marketing to be uh, an organic and sustainable farmer. Um, and then it comes to your packaging too. So if you're... Um, and that's so important because it's really what the consumer is going to see. They're going to hear your story and they're going yes. to be visualizing your cultivation. But when they receive the product, the first thing they're going to physically see is your packaging. And that's why uh, there is a movement in the industry right now to move away from plastics and move away from fossil fuels before Health Canada even makes that uh, a stipulation. And I think the larger LPs are, um, I, I've read a lot, I'm sure everybody that is on Facebook has read comments about uh, the large LPs and how much plastic comes to um, a user's home <clears throat> with the with the cannabis, and and that it's not recyclable and it isn't um, you know it's single use plastic and we're all trying to get away from that kind of thing and there are um, and Health Canada doesn't doesn't regulate what kind of packaging other than you know it has to be labeled properly it has to be a child uh, proof tamper proof packaging. It has to meet the the Health Canada regs, but as far as 
sustainability, they are, are single use or compostable or uh, they don't they don't regulate that in any way, shape or form. And so it falls on each person that's a grower to try and find the materials that are sustainable. So there are a couple of companies out there that are doing um, biodegradable packaging. Uh, the one that I um, talked to was a company in uh, Richmond, BC. It's called ND Supplies. And they had a biodegradable package that um, in 90 days, when, if in your compost pile, in 90 days, it just deteriorated to nothing. I and what, noticed recently they just took it off the market now, so they must be working on something else. And what Health Canada has said is very vague, and it's basically that they welcome licensed producers and by association microcultivations to use innovative and environmentally sound packaging uh, that does meet all of the regulations and that satisfies the regulations. So as Cheryl said, as long as it's meeting the child-proof uh, packaging and the clear labeling and it it isn't uh, overly attractive to underaged people then it is going to pass Health Canada's requirements and so we do have a couple companies that we can mention that are currently in business and the first is uh, packaging naturally and they're out of Ontario and they use a recyclable organic material so while that's not biodegradable, it's certainly better than a non-recyclable plastic, something that you couldn't just put in your recycling at home and know that it was going to be properly uh, recycled into another usable material. But it's definitely better than something that isn't recyclable at all or a single-use plastic, which is a lot of what the LPs are using. And then the second company is Nitrotin out of Kelowna in British Columbia, and they use a plastic alternative in addition to the uh, shipping container is made out of aluminum. So while that aluminum isn't touching the product at all, what's touching the product is a plastic alternative. And so that also would be uh, recyclable. So those are two options, depending on where you're located that you can look into. Uh, if you, feel like we feel that being sustainable is a priority and ultimately it's only going to do you a favor in terms of marketing and consumer uh, brand positive brand association because we, things are just going to get more environmentally friendly and greener as things go on and the people who first adopt those movements are the ones who are going to see the most success in terms of consumers favoring those opportunities. It's not only, um, you know, the, the right thing to do morally, it becomes a, fortunately, it becomes a great marketing tool as well. Absolutely. So now we're going to go into just a little bit of an update on uh, retail. So Saskatchewan is now following in Alberta and BC's lead and adopting a market-based system that allows cannabis store permits. And that's going to greatly increase the number of retail opportunities for entrepreneurs. Originally, they had a 51 store limit, but the province has now opened the door to much faster growth in the regulated market for adult cannabis use by marketing that they are allowing uh, 
retail, new retail stores to open. So the Saskatchewan Liquor and Gaming Authority will be accepting applications for cannabis retail permits starting in April 2020 for communities with populations under 2,500. Uh, sorry, that's will be accepting applications for cannabis retail permits starting in April 2019. And then in September 2020, the provincial regulator will accept license applications for retail outlets in all communities. So that's communities with populations over 2,500 or even less than 2,500. And the new store openings are the biggest driver of retail sales in Canada. And that's because consumers who were not previously cannabis users want the opportunity to familiarize themselves with the plant prior to just ordering it off of, let's say, the Ontario Cannabis Store and it's showing up at their home and they're not really feeling comfortable in how do I do this for the first time. So by going to a store, they can look at the products, they can touch it, they can feel it, they can look at other ways of consuming. So whether that's capsules or smoking or topicals or edibles, it allows the consumer the newer consumers who haven't experienced cannabis before legalization to have that opportunity to see it, feel it, touch it, smell it, and also to discuss their options with someone who is informed, who works for the retailer. And, and we it's believe- also somebody that um, you know, is working behind a counter that isn't gonna judge. So you know, a, a, an older person could walk into a store and have an open conversation about it as opposed to asking, you know, perhaps a, a contemporary and having there be some awkwardness and judgment and just a difficult conversation. So it's nice for someone to be able to go to a, a store open a store and get some informed information or some have an informed discussion. And we believe that Ontario will be soon to follow suit. Uh, because we have heard that that is what Health Canada and, and Ontario provincially is considering. But ultimately, we think the whole country is going to follow this new way of, of expanding retailers beyond just the provincial stores and the very limited licenses that have been given out. And we've also been given some information that uh, selling direct from a farm is also being looked at as a viable sales location. So similar to the way that uh, you would be able to go and pick up eggs from a local farmer or uh, produce from a local farmer, it would be a similar situation where you would be able to visit a cannabis farm or a cannabis cultivation and that specific cultivation would have a license to sell to people directly at the farm. And can you just imagine, like if you, uh, I know some of our, um, <clears throat> some of the people that we're working with do live on acreage. And isn't it exciting to think that you might be able to develop your farm into a, um, a cannabis location where like people go on wine tours in Napa Valley, or they go on a cycling wine tour of, uh, you know, the region in France where champagne is made. The same kind of thing. It's exciting to think that eventually we might be able to have farm gate sales where people could come to your farm as a location, a destination, and, you know, experience what it is that's happening on your farm and buy some of your product. Absolutely. It really would bring the consumer into a whole new 
experience the same way that people go apple picking or like you said visit vineyards right. in napa or in france it would be very similar and and definitely beneficial or even in the niagara region lots yeah. of people go yeah. and visit uh where ice wine is produced mm -hmm. it would really expand the consumer knowledge base to have that kind of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to touch on uh, forward thinking in terms of being a micro cultivation. So there's a company called Hexo that is one of the LPs and they have recently decided to suspend cultivation at their Niagara facility in addition to suspending production at their 200,000 square foot main facility in Gatineau, Quebec. And the company determined that this cultivation space is not required at this time, given the current market conditions in Canada. And as an LP, what they're saying there is that they didn't realize that they wouldn't need a facility that big. And this is what we have discussed before, that in typical LP fashion, they grew too big too fast and they didn't have a quality product that people wanted. And that's what I have been hearing from our colleagues, from consumers, from people in the industry, from other micro cultivations, that anyone who has purchased from an LP is disappointed with the product. And when I say anyone, I mean anyone who's familiar with cannabis. So unfortunately, there will be new to the market consumers who are buying from an LP and don't realize that the quality is as poor as it is. But that's what, what is happening. That's why LPs are not seeing the kind of success that they initially thought because they didn't realize that uh, craft cannabis was the future, quite honestly. And so that brings us to our final point for today. And that's that ultimately, this entire industry is going to come down to quality and the story you build your brand on. And that's what's going to make your business successful. And ultimately how you produce consistent quality goes back to what we discussed at the very beginning. And that's documenting everything to create your proprietary recipe of your growing medium, the seeds and the strains that you grow, how you choose to produce them so that each strain grows in the most optimized conditions possible and everything in between that goes into creating essentially your secret cannabis recipe and choosing your specific strain so that you become known as the producer with this set of genetics. And that's what the whole conversation today really ties back to is that it, it all comes down to the quality of your plants and the quality of your grow and and how customers are receiving that information, the fact that you care about the quality and that that is the utmost concern for you as a cultivator. Have you met Mary Jane? Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, feel free to send an email to jewel at cwcultivations.com. That's C-W-C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com.